Big Tin Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. Welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, where we talk about finding the why in how people buy. I'm your host, Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for lending me those wonderful ears. And if you're watching this on video, you should be. Uh, thank you for those eyeballs today. I have a DR in the house. That's right. A doctor in the house. Dr. Howard Dover. How are we doing, Howard? I'm doing great. We're, Can I call uh, you Howard? Perfect. That won't be like disrespectful because I ignore your DR. Is that okay? No, no, no. I have a rule if you, if, if my students, if they, once they earn over 100,000, they call me by my first name because the title isn't really valuable at that moment. I love it. Good rule. Howard, uh, let the folks know a little bit about who you are and, you know, I'll definitely mention your new book. Sure. I, I think um, a lot of people in the sales field seem to be discovering that sales is actually taught at universities. And, and so there are um, about 70 universities that are recognized by the University Sales Center Alliance that teach a kind of 12-plus credit hour curriculum. We're one of those uh, at UT Dallas. I formed the center 10 years ago this year. Um, so we're in our 10-year anniversary. And then if you look at the Sales Education Foundation, there's probably 250 to 300 worldwide that are whimpering with some kind of sales something, right? Not, not necessarily a full formalized program. And so um, we're just part of that. A lot of people misunderstand that we're, we're the only ones that do it. And uh, I, I'm a quant guy. We were talking off mic that you're an engineer. I'm, a, I'm actually... a a sales guy who became a computer programmer for the state of Oregon in my own business and then went and got a PhD in quantitative methodologies, and that's why I teach sales. Okay, I'm not even going to pretend to know what that is. Yeah, so what is that? <laughs> well, it's it, UT Dallas is known worldwide as one of the only quant um, PhD programs that pure quant. We, we don't teach managerial. We don't teach behavioral. We only teach mathematics, mm -hmm. econometrics, and statistics to approach marketing issues. So, um, it's by the way, for my audience, uh, this man is a data science nerd. I'll keep I love it data. Data tells stories. That's right. Right. Data tells stories. And so, um, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's, that's the thing. And, and for 10 years, Victor, you know, it's, it, people have been calling me and they've been staffing up. They're, there was the great migration that occurred about four years ago where over 30,000 sales jobs migrated to the DFW marketplace in less than 18 months. Wow. That's and so I want to see all types of ramp ups, ramp downs, you know, retransfers, you know, Toyota relocated their, their headquarters to Dallas. JP Morgan Chase moved a huge presence to Dallas. Liberty Mutual opened up three towers, State Farm opened up four towers. You know, so we had this big, huge migration. And in the process, we had thousands upon thousands of jobs that came into the marketplace. And at the same time, we had a bunch of companies decide that Dallas was the place to ramp up. Back then, we were the fourth largest sales city in the country. We're now seven. Um, so interesting, right? So that, so, that so, I, mean, I want to get to you. I want to get to your background because this is what I'm really fascinated by. Okay. Like I, the people I, by the way, I love all this data, but people still don't know who you are. Like, okay. you know, they know what you do, but like, 
you know, at the university, like, what do you teach? What do you do? And then, you know, how did you really start, you know, getting into sales, obviously, and then talking and writing about sales? Well, the first thing is I sold to survive as a child. Mm. So I, my mom and dad were poor, but we lived in Marin County, California. So if you know where Marin County, California is, north of the San Francisco Bay, one of the wealthiest counties in the world, my dad was a chef for the government and then a janitor. So if I wanted anything in life, I had, I, I learned that I could go sell. And I sold newspapers as a kid. And I, I sold my way to Disneyland. I sold my way to a pack. I, I sold my way to be able to go on canoeing trips with scouts. You know, I, I, I did everything. So I learned to sell young. Um, now, I will tell you, I was a great trainer, but not a great performer. So, um, so I consistent effort. I knew what to do, but I was always... There's a lot of um, value-based in me, so I would never lie. I'd never, never trick a customer in transactional space. You know, we, we all know it pays if you can be a little bit, you know, a little persuasive maybe, and, and maybe a little snake oily. You can make a lot more, right? But I never did. And um, then I went off to college. And, uh, and so when you ask what I teach, our curriculum is we have an introduction to sales, which is basically spin. Um, we start with the foundation of spin. And then we have an advanced class, which is kind of a boot camp that I teach. And we teach a lot of different methodologies, but we really focus on a basic framework of how buyers buy. And then we have, believe it or not, a digital prospecting class. We, we morphed our CRM class about seven years ago and made it into prospecting for modern times so that that course literally moves to market. It's constantly adjusting. Um, we And in all of our program, we have a quota in every class. You have a quota? Quota in every class. Explain that. This is a new concept. I've not heard that. <laughs> What's that new? You know it's not new. People have quotas. No, no, no. I mean, by the way, I know it's a quota as a salesperson, but you said you have it in the classroom. What do you mean by that? Well, there's a comp plan, right? Instead of, right. Instead of uh, a syllabus with, you know, hey, this is how you get the grade and the professor's in charge. You right. have a performance quota and the quota is in charge of the grade. So in the intro class, you have to perform 12 informational interviews um, with professionals in your field of interest. Then you move mm -hmm. up to the digital prospecting class and we have targeted events and targeted ICPs. You have to get those ICPs to the event. Now, not committed to attend, actually butts and chairs requirement. Um, and you have to get sales accepted leads as the ultimate scoring. If you get sales accepted leads off your people who attend, you fit the golden, the golden goose and yeah. you, you can get a, not only an A, you can get like a super A. And then so the last piece of the puzzle, um, is we have our boot camp, which has five dimensions right. of, of quota. And we actually have President's Club in there. So only 35% of our students who take boot camp actually come out of President's Club level. We call it professional program and sales. And only two of those are quota-based. One of them is you have to close $1,000 and you have to open 3000 in complex pipeline, not individual pipeline. So you got to get complex deals at 3 k Usually that requires at least one deal, but usually three deals is suggested. You have to have 12 meetings. You have to have a 90% a 
coachability score. And you have to have an SSI score at industry levels. Howard, you have blown my mind. Okay, I'm, I'm serious. I've never heard of a curriculum like this. I'm being just very honest. I've never heard this. This is amazing, though. Oh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Anyway, hey, to I, you, it's like, yeah, we do this all the time. We do it every quarter, Victor. But I'm just saying, hearing this from the outside, looking in is amazing. You know, when you talked about the number of colleges offering, you know, sales curriculums, you were, I thought it was around 17, 18. You said 70. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't realize it was growing that fast. We have like Kennesaw State here in Georgia. I think yeah. It has a sales program. Yeah, Terry, Terry is a great guy. And just, you know, he hosts the National Collegiate Sales Competition. So that's cool too. Did you know there is a National Collegiate Sales Competition in sales? So like the March Madness in March, Mm-hmm. 72 universities converge on Kennesaw State for the glory of being the number one sales student. I did not Right in my Old backyard. Based off, we're seated based off previous performance. It's a brutal smackdown, man. We made it to the Sweet 16 one time in the spring. Now there's one hosted by Florida State in the fall, and we made it to the final four multiple times there. But for some reason, that Kennesaw thing, I can't. I, you I know, it, it should it, be a brutal yeah. smackdown, by the way. It's sales. It should be a brutal smackdown. No, yeah. Oh, I, that is, I love that. What so if you, you know or you don't know, right? Either you yeah. know or you don't know. I, I wanted to ask you, like, what have you, as, as you see this program evolved, right? And you've been to these smackdowns, you know, what, what are like one or two observations unexpected observations that you've witnessed from watching these programs evolve and, you know, go through fruition? So the first, the, the first thing is in the first iterative cycle of development of a program is the, uh, I've come on the scene, I've learned how to teach students how to do role plays. And then all of a sudden uh, I get the partner deluge, which means everybody um, comes and tries to hire your people. That's, that's phase one. Phase two is, um, now let me determine what, what I really need to teach for, um, some of the higher paying jobs, right? So, so there's the sales jobs and there's the higher paying sales jobs. And I think you have to morph your curriculum if, if you're looking and you're listening. So we get an advisory board and our advisory board says, well, that's nice. That's great. I mean, years ago, this, this guy, um, Fortune 50 company in the dental supply business comes up to me in my biggest event of the year and says to me, Hey, Howard, I want to, want to tell you something. He said, you know, and he's Texan. You gotta love Texas. He said, yeah, Howard, I want to tell you something. I really like you. And I knew if somebody from Texas, so they, they like what's coming next. You know, right. yeah, you know, all right. What do he's you just, want? By the way, he's just winding up. He's just winding up. He's just winding and, up. And he said, did you know that 90% of my people's time is getting the meeting? not having the meeting. And he said, what are you doing about that? Now, we're in the midst of a role play competition with 120 kids competing. Every 10 minutes to 15 minutes, there's eight students going into rooms, broadcast on TV, inside. Listen, this is a big production going on. I've got TV stations with judges all over the place. Got 250 of judges from the industry, 150 kids trying to do a role play. And this guy comes up to me and says, Hey, let me tell you what I think. And, you know, he, he's one of my partners. So I said, Sure, I can stop 
everything I'm doing and listen to you right now. And he said, and he said, 90% of the time is being spent. And I said, you know, we realize, and he's on my advisory board. And I said, you know, I realized that when I went to Dreamforce and I heard everything I heard at Dreamforce and I realized we're, our curriculum is deficient in social selling and prospecting. So I don't know what to do about it, but I am aware of it. And he looked at me and he then he, then he gave me a compliment. He said, Howard, I really like you. He said, you know, I fund 17 programs around the country. And he said, you're the first one that's actually listened to me, let alone you have a plan. And right. that's why, once again, we, we, we took that CRM course and we made it around prospecting because we said, hey, you know, it, it's great to teach a meeting, but it's more important to say there's a whole area of space around getting that meeting doing prospecting, understand all of the mechanisms around that. And how did we know that SDRs were going to become the rave right. for the last, you know? So this is a statistic that's, that, that isn't out there much, that over the last um, few years, since 2015, we've had a 1,200% increase in the number of SDRs. That's 13x. Over the last uh, three years, we've had almost 100% growth in that. And so the, the ratio, if we look back three years ago, the ratio of SDRs to AEs out there, by the way, this is in aggregate. This isn't, yep. this isn't just tech sector. This is aggregate using LinkedIn data around these titles. We used to have a 50-50 in the space. Forrester came out with a report in 2015 said by 2020, we'd have a 20% reduction in salespeople. And everybody thought they were nuts. They're like, no, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Well, actually it did. So AEs dropped by 22% over the five-year period from 2015, actually from 2018 to 2021, we had a 22% reduction in sales roles. At the same time, we had an 86% increase in SDR. So overall, we actually expanded as a field but SDRs are now the rage with 67% of roles are now setting an appointment, not necessarily having an appointment. So we, we got ahead of that trend because we had a great advisory board. A good old Texan who caught me in the middle of an event seven, eight years ago and said, hey, what are you going to do about this? So, mm -hmm. you know, that's the good programs are listening to their advisory board. They've got great people. And that advisory board just pushes the envelope on us. So. No, I love that. I, I don't know if you know this, but I, I wrote a book in 2018. It was called, it's titled Sales Ex Machina, which is how artificial yes. intelligence yes. changed in the world of selling, right? And, and so I wanted to ask you, you know, how does that fit? Because you're highlighting something. Sales will never go away. It may change its form, but it's not going away. And you talked about, you know, really focusing on the CRM, specifically prospecting. How do you see the AI piece playing into this? Or if at all yet, is it still kind of in this nascent stage? You know, how do you see it? Well, I, I think if we were looking at a Gartner hype cycle, we're in the trough of disillusionment. Right. So the potential gotcha. is huge. Potential is huge, but I think we've misfired a lot. Uh, I think, I think what we've mostly done is we've used. Just, by the way, I'm, Howard, I'm so agreeing with you right here. I'm, by the way, I just want to take a moment because if you're not familiar with Gartner's hype cycle is if you can visualize this while you're listening or watching this is that there's this excitement. Yes. Right? That this is going to be the next thing. 
And then as implementation happens and results are not there, you hear this wah, 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 and we go into this trough of disillusionment. And that's when we realize we've overhyped this thing and it's going to take some time for it to come back around, back up to where it's really going to settle in and fit in the technology landscape. So right now, I totally agree with you that we've, we've overhyped it. We've oversold it, I think, a yes. lot of companies. And now we're sitting there going, well, how does it play? I guess that's why I'm really asking you the question. Yeah, I think, so I think a lot of what we've done up till now has been, there's, there's a great book by Davenport. Um, and by, by the way, your book is, uh, among the academics, it was the, everybody was talking about it was the must read. And, and, and oh. in fairness, you and I both know it's a fairly dense book. It's very, it's, 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 it's very dense. Because you, you grab a couple of academics to join you on that. Yeah. You know, God, I'm, I'm so glad you said that. You know, yeah. I'm not even thinking that's an insult. Uh, I go, no, this I, I, good. I'm just being honest, part, man. Yeah, it was like, it was heavy. And I think a lot of people just kind of skipped on it. You know, they, they probably gave up after the first couple of chapters because they're like, this is too heavy, man. And it just moved on. So anyway, thank you for pushing through. Yeah. Hey, well, you know, it's, it's, uh, listen, it's my space, right? I want it. A lot of people, I was, beginning to format my book and they said, well, you really need to read this book. And I, and I, and I went into it and I was like, wow, it's extremely dense. It's good, but it's dense. And, and, and that's a challenge, right? With the academic world is we write for each other, which it's unaccessible. And then there's, of course, we write for the industry and then academia says, well, that's so weak, right? It's, it it isn't supported. So finding the happy medium is the challenge. Um, very hard. Very Davenport put out a book and he put out a subsequent follow-up book. It was called Only Humans Need Apply. And from that book, uh, from Davenport, I'm going to borrow his ideas around um, what he calls automation versus augmentation. So mm-hmm. the, cha- the, the, the challenge that we've run into up to this point with automation is that really actually with technology, we, we've focused on the automating and replacing or amplifying, we've not necessarily focused on the capacity to augment the human capacity. It's in the augmentation space that we really see breakout performance. The automation is getting us in trouble with the buyer. Yes. So we've, we've over-rotated on two things. One, we've over-rotated on automation, and we've <laughs> over-rotated on SDRs who are acting like bots. Yeah. By the way, we got people acting like bots. I'm going to confirm you are a nerd. The over rotation is a beautiful, beautiful visual, by the way. What, what, what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it. I don't lean into it. Yeah, just there you go. Uh, It's interesting because, you know, you you, you, uh, talk a little bit about, let's kind of pivot into your book here. And then I want to pivot into the economy. But let's pivot into the book real quick because there were some interesting concepts in there. And I was reading it. And thank you for the data points. You had great data in there. And then as you explained it, this concept, I'm going to let you introduce. I was like, okay, here's you've articulated something I've been wanting to say, but I didn't know how to say it. So please introduce the book and then the main premise of that book. Well, the main premise of the book is this. We just deployed a whole lot of technology. We deployed sales enablement. We deployed a lot of training. And we still suck. Right. Very succinct. Uh, that's so as, as a scientist, right? As a, that's a research question. That doesn't make any sense. Every other industry that puts this kind of effort into this kind of moment 
has a breakout moment as a profession, right? As an industry, they have huge gains. Why did we not experience a huge leap forward? We didn't. That's right. That's and by the way, I love what you're, you're kidding, but I, I, I think that succinct statement really grabs it, right? Right. We've trained people. We gave them all kinds of technology tools, but then we're not seeing the results. And then you know, we, so, so this is the weird thing, right? Victor, when you think about efficiency, right? Technology. I gave people technology. I used to work for the state of Oregon. I designed computer system to take a process. One process took 40 hours to complete. I got it down to 15 minutes. That's what technology is supposed to do, right? Correct. We put automation into a spot. It's supposed to create efficiency. In our field, it didn't. Now, that, that to me as a technologist says, well, wait a minute. Why? What's going on here? So, what I looked at is said, okay, why? What's going on? And, and really, it, it, it's three factors that are coming together. And then, of course, there's some inertia around, around the leadership issue. But the, the primary thing is that technology has sped up. The, the number of times we're seeing innovation is almost continuous now. And so the buyer is constantly adapting and adopting. So let me reverse that. They're adopting then adapting their behavior based off the adoption. So there's, you can use the technology. And, and to give an example of this, um, I, I actually, I actually gave it, this is a keynote thing. And I've, I, my wife, it's about my wife. And there's one time in Tampa since the pandemic's been open and, and I actually gave it and my wife was there and I'm like, Oh, this will be interesting to see how she reacts to this because I gave her an iPhone. Mm-hmm. That's the right. She adopted. She got the product and she looked at me and said, I don't know why you got me that. I don't know how I'm going to use it. That was her reaction to receiving the iPhone. So then within six to eight months later, um, she leans over one night and says, Hey, by the way, I just want you to know if you ever die, I think I'll be okay. But if I lose this phone, I need a new one right away. Right. That's called adaptation, right? She literally adapted to the technology. Right. And now, so now you've got, so that's what the buyer's doing. Lots of new technology, adaptations, modifications of what they expect. And it's going on all over the place. There's multiple pieces of technology. And then we've got the salespeople. We've already talked about salespeople are using all this tech. So they're adopting. They're adopting their go-to-market strategy. The, the challenge is that a lot of this technology to deploy it, we have long planning cycles, long training cycles, long strategy cycles, and we, we tend to try to have conformity because the sales enablement says we got to do it the same way. And mm-hmm. so we target, prepare, and it takes six to eight months. Um, Eli Cohen taught me this. It was a great concept. He said, back in the day, what we'd do is we'd see a shock, right? A shock in the system. We'd spend three to six months understanding the shock. We spend three to six months creating a strategy for the shock. And we'd spend three to six months rolling out the strategy for the shock. And it worked. Well, now the problem is you get shocked. So you start planning and you get shocked. And you keep planning, you get shocked. And by the time you're actually even rolling out, you've had five or six more shocks. Mm-hmm. So the customer isn't anywhere near where you thought they were back when you started analyzing. Right. So our structures today don't fit. The, mo- the moment we stand in. 
So if, if I, can, I can pause you for a moment, Howard, because I want everybody to mentally catch up uh, because this is all in your book titled The Sales Innovation Paradigm, which I love the title, by the way. As soon as I saw it, that, by the way, the title actually caught my attention. I go, what's, what's the innovation paradox? And I, and I want to slow this down because it, your book was so refreshing to read. I'm not saying that it spoke up your backside. It was like, oh, somebody who's not regurgitating what somebody else said and just gave it a, a different spin. You were like highlighting a problem. And so I want to slow it down because I want people to get this. Absolutely. On, on the consumer side, we're consuming, as you say, we're adopting and then adapting, right? That's on right. the sales side, they're trying to figure out how to sell us all the time, right? Right. And, but, you know, so you got almost like two, so the, wet, the visual well, I had for your book, I had two wheels going, right? That's right. One's trying to catch up to the other. And it reminded me of, and this is what gave it context for me. I said, oh, now he's actually, he gave a phrase to something I've been thinking about is that we figure out a new technology, right? So we adopt it, right? Mm-hmm. We begin to use it and it starts to work, right? Yes. But then the consumer, on the other hand, starts to get it and becomes smarter. And now that doesn't work, but yet people are still using it for another six to eight months. And I'm like, it ain't working anymore. That's right. And then the innovators, the salespeople come up with a new ideas. A That's year right. later, and this cat and mouse game is almost this ratcheting up of, you know, I need to I need to find a way to get a meeting with you. I'll use this strategy, and then the buyer says, nah, "I know what you're doing," and then you come up with another better strategy. And I don't know if I've explained that clearly, but is yeah, that, that's the that third cycle. Yeah, you know, so the third cycle is that the buyer's reacting to what we do, right? Yeah, so that's the sub cycle, right? Sales innovation, behavioral shift, but the sales innovation is occurring over on the sales side. The behavioral shifts occurring over on the buyer side. Classic example of this, Victor. And if you're training this, um, please continue because I, I, I don't know who's teaching all the door to door salespeople to do this, but I love it. They come and they knock on my door here in Texas and then they step like 10 steps back beyond the threshold, right? right. Because if somebody's teaching them, if I open my door, right, then I will come out because they're not right there. It's, you know, I, I understand the psychology of it. Except there's one little piece of technology that I'm deploying as a buyer. I have a nest on my computer. I have a nest at my such, front door. That is such a great example. That right. So, by the way, you know I want you. I want you to incorporate that into your speech. That's the visual that captures it right there. That's the yes. example. So the guy knocks on my door. He steps five steps back, and I look at. I look at it, and I go. Hey, I go, right. My nest goes right on my right. It's right there on my watch. And it says, Hey, somebody's at the door. Now there's, there could be a kid in the neighborhood. There could be a, a right. They dropped a package or it's a salesperson. Now, in some right. of those, I'll go right to the door. And the other one, I'll, I, I'm at, listen, I'm, I'm in a place where it takes a long time to get to my front door because I'm in a Texas, Texas house, which means I'm huge because we, it's so hot and crazy outside. There's actually tornado warnings going on right now because we've got a storm, but okay. uh, interesting. No, not kidding. That's what I hear I in the background. Okay. <laughs> that answer is that way. Okay. Should we end yeah, this podcast right, so right now? But yeah. So I look at it and I go, hey, that's a salesperson because they stepped 10 feet back from the door. I know I don't need to go to, I, I know I don't need to go to the door. Right. It's beautiful. And please, whoever's, whoever's training that way, please keep it up. Because yeah. the more people who get that ring will just learn, oh, that's great. See, that's the behavioral bond, right? I've yeah. learned what that best practice looks like, and I just right. avoid you. So now we're waiting for, if we could take this cycle 
to the next level, the salesperson has to find a way to get inventive. And you know, bring to a kind of your technology. What's that? And bring a What's package. That? Yeah. So they should hold a package. Let <laughs> you go, wait a minute. Or just leave a package there and just kind of hide out the view of the actual camera, right? And I don't know. Yeah, step out. Is this a high value target or low value target? That's funny. So I can see the next evolution. They put the package down. They're off camera, right? So then they start using that strategy. Then you probably deploy a drone outside right. your house. I add another camera to see what's going on. Anyway, so it, yeah. it, it when and that's the full cycle, right? You bring all cycles together. Right. And, and you know what, Victor? I, I would agree with you. I've seen this for years. And and as I, I painstakingly went through a lot of this during the pandemic, it gave me a language to communicate what's going on. It you know, gave me a language. And I think for a lot of leaders, a lot of trainers, a lot of um, even individual contributors, managers to say, how do I teach this? I, I feel the book gave me language to b- more gotcha. clearly communicate what's actually going on. So, um, yeah, the, and, and, and it's big- a key moment, right? Because we're, we're in this moment in the economy right now, Victor, and, and we know. So all the leaders, all the CFOs are looking at it and saying, well, we've already cut the marketing people, right? We know that marketing, Gardner put out a report in January 20. 22 that said marketing spend was going to drop 50%. Uh, apparently, digital mm-hmm. ad spend dropped like a rock. Um, so we already right. cut the fat on the digital ad spend because we over, once again, that over rotating, right? We over rotated on digital ad spend during the pandemic. We, we caught up for a decade worth of digital transformation in what a year or two years. So now that's going to dissipate. And so that's going to be where we, we start cutting some slack. We probably are cutting our training, which means Victor's going to have a great business coming into 2022 because they're going to cut the internal and have to go external. Um, but then what we're going to do next is we're going to start, we're going to start cutting that headcount because nobody knows. I mean, when you talk to leaders right now, everybody's in the powder dry moment. We don't know what's 2023. We don't know where we're headed. Uh, you know, it's I was complex. listening to, um, uh, I was listening to, uh, it was a Jamie Diamond again, the CEO of uh, Chase Bank. Yes. And so he's expecting this to really hit by mid-year of 2023. And again, nobody knows. Everybody's guessing. Yeah, yeah. But, but what I do notice is that there's more voices saying, oh, it's coming. And then some of the, the headcount reductions, you're starting to see them. So, I mean, these are kind of obvious tea leaves. So then my question back to you, Howard, would be, you know, you, you talked to, I'm sure, a lot of senior management. You know, what are you telling them? Well, I, I think the first thing is we've hired the wrong people and trained them the wrong things. But to, let's just be honest. We, we, when, when we talk about that over-rotation on SDRs, we've, we've really over-rotated on this idea that we need appointments, not sales. And, and that's a problem. By the way, for the Victor Antonios of the world, <laughs> welcome to happiness. Because nobody knows how to sell. Everybody knows how to set an appointment. So the training businesses are going to be in heaven for the next five to 10 years because we just raised a crop of entry-level salespeople. I mean, let's just go back, Victor, for a second and say, let's go back to the pre-SDR era. You trained a salesperson to sell, right? We right. trained them. We, we had to train them how to sell. And 
Now that we've done the SDR thing, we say, well, we just need them to set appointments. That's really transactional at the end of the day. That's a pretty simple sale. I mean, listen, all the people out there trying to set appointments, I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm saying it's a transactional and relatively simplistic sale uh, to get the meeting. It's kind of hard to get them to buy, especially if it's complexity. And and so the challenge that we're in is that the 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 talent and the skills we need for the moment we live in are probably not in deep supply in most sales orgs. I, I love CNBC. They keep on reporting the elongated sales cycle. The elongated we're having elongated sales cycles. And what I want to say is, no, we have inexperienced salespeople swimming or outside positive. their ICPs. And we've been able to get away with that for years. That's interesting. We've been able to get away with that for years. That's an interesting perspective right there. Yeah, that is interesting. The When I look at the the market today, you know, uh, and you look at, you know, in the book I wrote, the last one I wrote was Mastering the Upsell. And in there, I highlighted a data point. Love to get your take on it because this goes back to what might be happening in, in, the, in the coming year. And that is our existing customer base. One study showed that you could increase your revenue by up to 30%. By selling to your existing customer base. Sure. Not, we're not even talking about reducing your cost of sales because there is no, or sales cycle because they're, you know, they're already your customers. You know, this would be one strategy I think I would deploy if I was looking at this upcoming year. How do I sell more to my existing customer base? What's your take on that? And what would you add to that in terms of trying to insulate yourself from the fluctuations that might be coming economically? So if, so agree with you. Now, what are we going to see? So, I, okay, that would be the logical ear engineering mind just went in and said, that's mm-hmm. the thing to do. My right. economic mind says that's the thing to do. What are we going to see? We're going to see CFOs cutting customer success. Mm. You know why? Because they don't perceive customer success as revenue generating. So what you just described to me is if I am really focusing on not only ensuring that first value occurs, but ensuring deep value occurs so that I can deepen my penetration into an existing account, expand that account, really make sure the value's there. So I get renewals, number one, and I get expansion, number two. Right. A lot of that is coming in the customer success side of the business. And yet, what is the first thing we're going to do? I mean, right after we cut marketing, what is the next thing we're going to do? Because we we misperceive what customer success can be and in a, in a more increased recurring revenue model, your customer success is your revenue generating reality. That's such a great, that's such and, a great point, Howard. And so, you know, we're point. we're actually gonna we're gonna do the wrong thing. Yeah. Because the CFO, the CFOs are gonna look at that and say, hey, they don't generate revenue because we don't report it that way. Mm-hmm. We don't report them as revenue generating, we report them as a cost. So those organizations that could defend the spend, I think that's where if you're a leader, if you're a revenue a CRO leader, you've really got to look at that find a way to defend the spend and say, hey, I don't, no, no, don't be cutting my my customer success team. In fact, if anything, I probably need to, to I was at my own summit. I, we hold summits twice a year at UT Dallas. And I like the way you I, want, I was at my own summit. It just sounded funny. I don't know why. Right, it's okay. We, I, lots of people ask me, how do you figure everything out? I said, I attend my own summits at UTD. It's We've been doing it for five years. They really do teach me a lot. A lot of what we train and teach is we we bring great people in and we change. Right? So I'm sitting there and I'm listening to a manufacturing uh, sales leader who said, 
we're going to change the way we onboard salespeople. And they're go- the first rotation after they get through global sales school is they're going to be in the customer onboarding team until they learn how to generate value from a recently secured business. And once they've mastered the internal resources, understanding how the customer gets value, then and only then will I move them to a part store or to inside sales. And I went, oh my gosh, that's a genius. That's a genius move. Focus on... do they have time to do... I mean, I, so so I'm gonna I'm gonna just be, play devil's advocate here. I go, sure. that's great in theory. Yeah, it's great in theory. But we also know that, you know, just to bring somebody on board and give them to that level where they're actually providing real value. Yeah, it's time. Yeah, yeah but see know, here, Victor. That's the thing, though. Do they really yeah. provide value in that first year? Don't they just kind of screw up? They're outbound. Yeah. Screw up the brand. Screw up. I mean, come on, let's be honest. Let's. No, yeah. they do. And, and our our job. That, that's what I'm saying. Can companies, if we look at, let, let me let me contextualize the, 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 this statement. As they're looking towards the future here over the next six months to a year, we have a rough economy. Right. I'm, I'm with you that whether it's six months to a year to get people to speed to value, point where they actually contribute to value, uh, is a long time. How do you reconcile those two things? The economy's going to, you know, the pot. I need to bring people on board, but it's taken long to actually get them trained or onboarded. Is, is, I mean, do you see that as a problem or am I missing something? Well, I think what's going to happen, and, and we know this is what's going to happen, is they're going to rotate to experience, right? There's going to be a lot of people laying people off, so we're going to hire the people who are experienced. And if you read my book in the back end of the book, so you're just going to replicate the classic sales machine instead of having this huge leap with technology. Right. So uh, unfortunately, you're trapped in where you've always been in the good enough world instead of the exponential growth world. What I wish companies would do is take this moment to say, let's take this moment to leapfrog. Let's take this moment to really double down. Uh, listen, I would I would say you hire the right people. Um, you, you you don't need to hire a lot. You hire the right mm-hmm. people. You've got things going on. And I and I think that this idea of in the recurring revenue model, um, it when did it, Dave Brock said this once? It was such a such a gem. He said, "When did we get this idea that the least experienced person of our company?" should call the most experienced person in our customer's company and be the initial contact point for our brand. That's broken. Just, That's just, broken. just Yeah, just drop the mic. Tell Dave, drop the mic on that one. It's a great yeah. question. It's a great yeah. question. He said, I pay my SDRs a million dollars a year because I need somebody who's awesome. Yeah, I need who's somebody who really can tell the story. Right, And, you, and so... I think when we look at this, I think the way our go-to-market model for most companies is based off of two books. And I'm not blaming the people who wrote the books because people are misusing them. It, it's uh, Predictive Revenue by Aaron Ross, right? right. Salesforce did it, therefore I will. Um, right. And then Trish Bartuzzi has a great book on how to design a, a sales development, right? So it's the Sales Development Bible. And so companies take those two books and they create their go-to-market strategy based off this SDR functionality. And when you look at it and you say, hey, there's there's a 13x differential over the last five to six years of the number of people just questioning you, Victor, you know, you're in this longer than I am. Um, have we had a 13x increase in the number of buyers? No. 
Are you sure? I don't think so. And then, By the way, are you, are you talking about buyers involved in the actual decision-making process or buyers in general? No, no, companies. Yeah, but okay. So, all right. Fair enough. Right. Let's go. So back back went back in the day, we had 6.8 was the 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 CEB slash Gartner number. And right. so it's doubled to 13. So we've had a doubling. Let's let's give it a double. Yes, I agree. 100%. Okay, so we have double the number of buyers, but we don't have 13 times. Now let's add technology. We can do it at 10 times to 100 times the efficiency. Mm-hmm. So we can 130 to 1300x the outbound with double the customers. Right. So let's so invest in, let's invest more in that. Let's just keep investing more in that. And, and so I think the companies where we're seeing breakouts, right? The, where, where you get out of that ugly, this isn't working, you just start mm-hmm. to see breakouts. And so what I'm hoping is that companies find the right go-to-market model that we we kind of go back to this idea that, hey, we actually need people who generate revenue right. and that understand customers. We, we it, listen, that bot-like work that we're all doing could be done by bots. Let's just turn it over to the bots because it's already bot-like. Let's just bot it. And by the way, it didn't work. That's why we hired salespeople because that's called marketing. Right. And you know, when so, I look at... I was, I was going to highlight, you know, when you look at the work that, and SDRs are going to listen to this and take this the wrong way, but a lot of the yep. stuff they do is is very repetitive, rudimentary. Yes. You know, it's just, you know, it's just massive emails, massive text. And again, when you get them on the phone, I think Dave Brooks has commented about, you know, why do I have a guy, that, a gal that makes this much money calling the person who makes a, this level decision all the way up here? And I see that a lot. And that's, that's what I loved about your book. Your book really kind of dissects that a little bit. But I wanted to ask a question before I forget. And I was looking it up real quick. There was a gentleman by the name of Clayton Christensen. Yes. Who wrote the innovation, it was the innovative innovation paradox, right? Yes. And one of the things he talked about, are you, you're familiar with his work? Yeah, it's the innovator's dilemma. And then the innovator's then he, dilemma, sorry. The, and, then, and in there, he talks about, he was an example, for example, the, the microprocessing or the steel industry, how they had to disrupt themselves. Yes. And they had to kind of step outside. And I, I wanted to tie that back into what you're saying, because if, if this, this cat and mouse game of seller and buyer continues to happen, what do we need to do, man, to, to break out of this? If I'm a company right now looking at what I consider might be a challenging year, how can I disrupt what I do? Is it training? What, what, what can I disrupt within my company to help well, I, me? I think, years? I think the challenge is we only train what we know. And, and I think here, here's the honest truth. We, we need to create things we don't have currently. And so uh, my job right now is I, I've formed an institute. I'm going out there and trying to identify what I call the disruptors and the breakouts. And, and Microsoft has been doing this for several years in their demand gen group. Now they're not out there cooing about it because it gives them a competitive edge. They're generate that. They're dealing with a million leads a year and they deal with that million years leads a year with only 360 salespeople. And now I'm a couple of statistics. So they, in, in their AB test in Dublin, when they launched this, um, this was an AAISP presentation. I don't know the year, but it's in the book as reference. Um, it was a keynote. At By the way, AAISP Association of Inside, inside Sales Professionals. Inside Sales Professionals. Um, 
It was their leadership summit in Chicago. The, the leader for Microsoft got up and described this and said, the A-B test, we had an 8X on top of funnel, 10X on revenue. Okay. Now, I flew to, now, Victor, I don't know about you, but I'm like, oh, well, hello. 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 Well, I flew, yeah, I, flew like, I was going to be in England. I said, you know, I'm, I, I fly right over Dublin, so I'm just going to drop into Dublin. And I got a half-day tour with the Dublin team. And in indeed, in, they verified that they not only hit that number, but they are having double-digit KPI increases every 30 days. Now, I want to pause you right here. This is in the book. It this itself was a gem in the book. So, yeah, I, I know you're, gonna, you're modest, but Sales Innovation Paradox, get the book. Continue. Thanks, you. Then... So, you know, I, I love when people say, now, Jen Seeger actually came to UT Dallas and we, we interviewed her on stage because during one of my calls with her on a, on a semi-annual basis or quarterly basis, I was talking to her and she goes, well, we just, and I, I asked her always at the end of my call, I said, what KPI have you increased by double digits in the last 30 days? And she will always tell me. And she said, actually, Howard, we just completed a, a program where we just did a 6X. And I said, excuse me. And I said, tell me about this. And it is literally harnessing the technology to right size that SDR nurturing with a combination of sales and marketing that's fully integrated with human touch interaction at the right moment. And, and when I interviewed the people in Dublin, one of the salespeople, I said, so tell me what's this like? They said, it's, it's cool. She goes, I come in in the morning at the rank of the 100 things I should do today. Send an email here. But it doesn't say just send an email. It has the email crafted. So I can modify or just send as is. And then it, it and by the way, so, so I do my 30, 40 things. I go, go do a coffee break for 15 minutes, right? I come back. The thing's rejiggered. It's, re, it's recalibrated. So if somebody downloaded a white paper, somebody called the 1-800 number, Somebody right. did something, right? It's all re, if, if one of the emails I sent out, the person says, Hey, call me right away. I want to do this. It's all put back in the queue based off priority rankings and probability of revenue generation. And the salesperson, by the way, it was not an SDR. It was a salesperson. The SDR work was being done by this machine that, that they had created this huge demand gen engine. And the salesperson said, I love coming to work because they improve my ability to perform at peak levels every single day. Wow. I love working here. What did, what did you see, you know, when you were talking to her and, you know, the, and knowing about the company, what, what, and I hate to use this word, but I, I have no other word for it. What was the culture, you know, with respect to that's, technology? What was the culture? God, that's so key. So, right, top-down versus bottom-up, right? That's our big challenge. Usually, these initiatives come from the top and go down. So, when I was interviewing the site lead, I said, talk to me about how this happens. And he says, he said, I meet with programmers every two weeks. He said, anybody in this company, anybody on this team can propose something that needs to change. He said, for example, he said, we had something that required four clicks and two screens. He said, one of the one of the salespeople said, it doesn't take a lot of time, but why, why do we have four clicks and two screens? We're Microsoft. Why can't we make it one click, one screen? And the guy 
Every two weeks, he meets with his programmers. So that comes into the queue. And he said, sure enough, within like six weeks, one screen, one click, no more, four, two screens, four clicks. Little things, right? This is driven by the bottom up. Sure, sure. It's the people saying, why do I have to do this redundant function? I have to, I have to take this information from one screen, drag it over and type it into another screen, then move into this other database that doesn't collaborate. And they listen and they modify. And that's why they're in constant KPI. The KPIs are constantly improving because they have a list of all the items, not from just the leadership, but from the people actually doing the motions. It's a combination. Then they stack rank it on efficiency and effectiveness, productivity, probability of increase. One of the ones to, to make the biggest thing for the buck go first. Doesn't matter where it comes from. Does it come from the site lead or from the, from the person doing the work? Doesn't matter. It goes for impact. And they have their own programs. Yeah. So immediately everybody's going, I'm not Microsoft. I don't have those resources. Thanks a lot. Now you make me wish that, you know, I work for Microsoft. And by the way, they're tough to get into. We know this is for UTD. It's hard to get into them. And they don't need salespeople if they're generating revenue. By the way, when I interviewed them the first time, they had 300 people. When I interviewed them, fourth or fifth time, like three years later, they that 600% increase, mm-hmm. they hired three people. Wow. Wow. So the by the count. way, the, the, and you bring up a good point. I like the way you block the objection about, now if you're thinking that you can't do this, you're not Microsoft, because you're right. It, you, you're not saying that you have to be at that level, but it's, again, I get back to the word culture, right? Yeah. It's a culture of listening and adapting. Listen, ad- probe and adapt. Probe and adapt, right? Probe into the marketplace. Look what the behavioral actions are. Adapt. We're gone is the day where we could look at a phenomenon, spend three months, six months, develop a plan, develop a training around it. Agile is the moment of the day. Adaptive, yeah. adaptability. So let me tell you about Tyler Barron. So you would think there's a guy in Dallas a few years ago, worked for a company that's called Beck um, Construction. They have a little technology company called Beck Technology. They sell the same technology that they use in construction to the rest of the world. They mm-hmm. have four to five, maybe six salespeople. Now, if you're from my program, you'd be going, I don't want to go work for or with only six people. When I'd have my interviews with my students, I'm like, where do you want to go? They're like, I want to go to Beck, but I don't know the job because it's so hard to get into Beck. And I, and I had all these kids saying, I want to go to Beck. See, and I called up Tyler. And I said, dude, what are you doing over there? And he's, he said, Howard, he said, you guys are the perfect place for us because you teach tech. We move with tech. And he said, we don't have the huge budget that everybody else has, but we have, we definitely make sure that we add the right tech stack so that we completely automate, augment our salespeople. And he said, my job is to make your job as efficient as possible. Here's this guy with Love six that. people to 10 people. He generated now, he had 4X, 3X, quarter per quarter, year, quarter on quarter. Now, you can't keep doing that, right? When you're that size. Right. But he didn't have to. He came back to me with a CEO one day. They said, hey, we're like kicking it, man. I said, your students and our program, this is, this is like heaven. It's heaven. And he said, I'm worried my VP of sales is dying here. He said he can't quite manage what I need him to. 
You can't quite man it. I mean, it's just overwhelming with that volume. Think about that volume. 3X, 4X, to back. You're, you've got a lot of volume coming in now. Sure. We're still the VP. you got a lot of logistics dealing with it. And, and I said, you know, it seems a little unorthodox, but maybe you need a sales technologist slash enablement very so early in the process instead yeah. of hiring the next salesperson. So that that person can work hand in hand with the VP and take a lot of that minutia and some of that, some of that nitty gritty around the tech stack and deployment and what, what should be coming next. And, and that way the VP can focus on those other elements of the business, but that person can focus on onboarding technology rollout and efficiency gains. And they said, well, where do we find one? And I said, well, it's tough because the sales enablement people that exist are primarily trainers or marketers. They're really not technologists. I said, maybe just right. grab one of my kids, mm -hmm. put them as an intern and tell them that's what they need to do. And that right. woman became one of the, the smartest sales enablement technology specialists. They hired her. They, they, weren't, they didn't have to grow anymore. They didn't have to grow the headcount. Okay. Let, me, let me ask you a question. I, the, you, yeah. I can bring I just love it. You should, this last five or 10 minutes you just gave me was gold, by the way. Just gold, man. Just gold. The, the interview uh, is the gold, my friend. The interview so, is the gold. So, so two questions, two questions. Uh, yeah. One is, you know, this VP dilemma, right? Company, the VP is overwhelmed, right? Because of the, the sure. growth factor quarter over quarter. And I wanted to ask you, you answered it already, but I just kind of wanted to like, expand a little bit. Is there... Because of the, the tech stack, and let's also talk about uh, the tech stack turnover. Because again, technology improved, we need different, you know, rejiggering re of the stacks, as you say, rejiggering. Sure. Is, is the age of your archetypical VP dead? Is it, I mean, should this not be a new animal? Is it a sales op animal? This is a guy, a guy or gal that's sales and tech, uh, technology at the same. Is there a new breed of, senior management and sales that we need to be looking at? Or do we do division of labor, as you're saying, say, okay, you know, that guy, you do the technology, I'll just do the customer-facing big deal deals. So two answers. Number one, I would say that that technologist was hand-in-hand -hand collaboratively. I don't think that there was a division. I think mm -hmm. there was a collaboration. It was, it was two people operating as one. That's right. why it worked. Um, uh, I, I, th I think the old concept, and I'm an economist by trade, I think this economy is a scale thing. Mm -hmm. The Industrial Revolution concept is breaking down in the modern era for a lot of different reasons, which I also uh, uh, outline in the book and I won't talk about now. I think the rise of the CRO is exactly what you're describing. The rise of the CRO says, okay, marketing's off doing their own thing. Technology's off doing their own thing. Ops is off doing their own thing. Right? We've We've... We've had the division of labor, and we should be getting the economies of scale. That's why we divide the labor. The idea is right. Once again, we 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 specialize so that we can generate more efficiency. Well, that ain't that hasn't happened. The rise of the CRO is is where that's coming in to say, um, well, chief revenue officer is going to say, I don't care where the revenue is coming in. It's coming in through digital, or if it's coming through sales. Um, I need the technology I need. The question is, is technology the chief technology officer level or under CRO? Good question. Mm -hmm. um, enablement should be at the, 
the CRO level. I, I almost hate to use the word enablement because it means a lot of things to a lot of people. Right. I've, re- I've written many papers on this with my co-author, Rob Peterson, and the challenge is that there's a need to strategize go-to-market. If that's what enablement is, that's what we need. We definitely need strategy thinking at the highest levels and down through the org level to do this differently than we've ever done it before. Because we're in a moment. We're in a moment where the technology's exceeded our ability to harness it and deploy it. And those that are doing it. So this is the final stage of the, hopefully this is the final stage of the gold. So you would, you would be, when I first wrote the paper, the, the book, Mm-hmm. I was like, it's it's a leadership problem. It's a leadership problem. It has to start at the top. Then the pandemic hit, and I started getting a lot of communication from my alumni who had been taught kind of under this new 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 concepts. And they're 8X and 10Xing their 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 peers. And I was like, oh, this can happen at the individual. The individual can break out, hmm. but it's tough when you break out as an individual. Because what you're going to do is you're going to do what I, what I call modern motions. And and what you're going to do is you're going to do things people don't do. You're going to do it in ways people don't do it. The top guy at Adobe, when I interviewed him, so just to give him a frame of reference for credibility, he left our program. He was the rookie of the year for Adobe. Then in his second year, he was number one SDR for the world at Adobe. Then he moved into an AE role. He succeeded so well that he got promoted to be national accounts in the year, in his three and a half years, he made it to national accounts. Everybody else in there was 10 to 20 years experience. He had three. Hmm. So there's the credibility. Now let me tell you the story, right? So this guy showed up at 6 a.m. in the morning. Everybody else showed up to work at eight. He went and got breakfast at the Adobe facility to his desk and he listened to every major call that closed the day before because they allowed him to, right? And he knew how to use chorus. So he went in at, two, at double time, listened to every call when he was just a youngin, right? He's still only an SDR, but he's trying to say, okay, what causes the deal to close? What causes the deal to close? Because I can go listen to everybody. I don't have to say, hey, Victor, Victor, you're awesome, man. You're like the best guy. I mean, you're number one in the company. He didn't have to ask for your time. He can go right into the calls and listen to you. So and by the way, small pause, small pause, small pause. I want you to keep going with the story. Just make sure yeah. my... So Chorus.ai is, uh, uh, I guess you record the actual conversations. AI figures out, you know, certain aspects, variables, whatever you want to call them, that close deals. And yes. then if you're listening to the calls and you understand what these triggers or deals or uh, variables are, you'll be more effective at selling. Please continue. Sorry. That's what he's, that's what, and Gong's another one. We don't, you know, we want right. to be equal to, um, and, and so that's one thing. And then, then when I asked him, I said, so tell me about how you go to market. Tell me about how you make the calls. And he said, he said, you know, a lot of my team does it the same way all the time. He said, I never do it the same way all the time. He said, if I go back three months ago and I were to listen to my call, it'd be so dramatically different than the way it is today. This is because the customer, is constantly adapting. Now, some of my early book stuff made it into my lectures. And so he's sitting there going, hey, Dr. Dover, the customer is constantly adapting. So I'm going in and I'm probing what works. If it works, I hold on to it. But I don't hold on to it like gold. I hold on to it until it doesn't work. 
And then I'm constantly adapting, constantly adapting. And every one of my top performers that I listened to, because I, I said, wait a minute, let me go, go talk to the number one guy in North America from Qualtrics, because he's our guy. Let me go talk to the, one of the top performers at IBM. That's our lady. So I started talking to all of them, and they all said the same thing. I probe and adapt. I go in, I, I look at the market. I know the customer is moving. So I, I go in. If I can't find the customer where I think they're going to be, then that's the wrong approach. So then I pull back and I adjust. I probe and adjust and I probe and adjust. And I'm constantly in an adjustment cycles. They're in a constant state of moving to where the customer is and they meet them there. And when you do that, I'm just just listening because this is is good. The, it's almost like a Kaizen approach, right? Continuous improvement within the world of selling. And I think what's interesting is trying to find the right. I mean, we, Howard, we can go on another tangent with this one, but let's be, let's see if we can keep this one brief. How do you screen for that? You know, in an interview, in, in, you know, when you're trying to bring people, how do you screen for that adaptability, that probe, adjust, probe, adapt? How do you screen for that? Because that's the frustrating well, thing no. leaders are facing. That's that's why we've adapt. That's why we've created a coachability score in our program. Uh, coachability basically says, if I give you coaching, will you will you do the same thing twice, or will you change? Right, and so coachability score becomes key. Um, unfortunately. We don't have a third-party verification system on coachability. It's mm-hmm. self-report. Now, I, I think that gets into a bigger problem, though, Victor. And that is, I hire who I think will be good. I know where you're going. So my bias of what used to be is my problem. Let me tell you the story. Let me, I'll try to do this one briefly, but I'll tell you my favorite time, story right now. Time. I'm loving this conversation. Take your time. So there's this young lady. Her name's Jasmine Alanis. She walks into my office two years ago, and she is going to think about taking the advanced class. And now after having a full-blown, realistic discovery conversation with her, I don't close her on boot camp. I say, I don't know if this is right for you because it doesn't necessarily line up with your vision on what you want to accomplish in life. And I'm not sure it's going to be the right thing for you. So I, I leave it. Now, normally, if I can get it, I close them, right? Like, hey, this will change your life. And hey, listen, we've got a machine that will just make you amazing. And, but for her, I was like, I don't get the vibe here. So here's my, right? My bias, is that right? My bias is going, now, I, I did discovery and I tried to learn and there was an alignment. So I said, I'm going to leave it up to you whether you show up in my class in January or not. So I'm, I'm fully thinking I'm not going to see her again because she's like, I've heard the class is really hard. My GPA really matters to me. And I, I just don't think this is going to align with me. And I said, well, then it's not right for you, right? It's, if it's not right, it's not right. So come in January, there she is. I'm like, oh, well, this is probably not going to go well. Now, Number one in the class by so she had 3.3x on president's club level quota. Moved on to an account manager, currently holds the most any student has ever ever closed. She closed $140,000 in business over a summer. 
the woman is the most productive person I've ever met. And I'm not sure if you interviewed her, you'd see it. Interesting. But she is the best salesperson I've ever seen in years. I know. That's, that's, that's the congratulations, Jasmine. But I mean, that's the frustrating part, right? It's like, you know yes. what you need, but it's like, again, people are black boxes. You never know. Until you put pressure in that you don't see what the output is. And but we're biased always, too. But we're biased. Right? What do you think? What, what do we think? Hire, by the way, we like to hire people who are like us or think like us. That's one of the biggest mistakes we make, actually. It is. That's our challenge moving forward. When we want to talk about getting more women in sales, when we talk about getting more diversity in the sales, our number one problem is we think we know how to interview. And we don't. There's a, the psychological term for that is like, I, you know, the, obviously bias is one, but there's something called the fundamental attribution error. And the fundamental attribution error is I, I just make certain assumptions. I attribute certain things to what I see or hear. Therefore, I cancel people out. What are the biggest mistakes we make? In Love it. Yeah, I've, I've learned. Yeah. Some guy walked in. I walked in uh, last fall and this guy who doesn't know me well came up to me and says, so have you picked out the winners yet? And I looked at him and I said, I've learned long ago, I can't pick them. The system creates them and I just let them, I, I just execute the system, right? I just, I, I let every kid have an equal opportunity um, and, and their effort and their coachability and their ability to harness the skills and understand the modern moment brings them to the top. And it always does. The top kids in our program will disrupt a company when they arrive. And we have to tell them, we have to tell our partners, listen, you better hire one or two of these and let them have some space. Let them do things because we've given them momentum. Don't clamp them down with structure because they're already thinking outside the box. Let them infect your org. Let them go in and infect oh, your org. Love that. That's Dr. Howard Dover, please let these folks know where they can find out more information about you and the book. So if you want to hire our students or engage with what we do, I like to say it's a journey. We're not that smart. We just work with really great people. and We learn together. That's UT Dallas. We actually have our own hashtag. That's hashtag UTD sales. If you want to go back and look at the history of everything we've accomplished over the last decade. And then the sales innovation paradox is available at, uh, at, at all booksellers online. And Institute will be up and firing in Q1 of next year. And LinkedIn's the best place to connect with me. That's I don't I don't do the other ones because I only have so much time in a day. So LinkedIn's the home. Wonderful. On that note, Dr. Howard Dover, uh, check out his information again. I strongly recommend the book. Like just just buy the book, people. Just if you're listening to watch it, just buy the book. You'll see what I'm talking about. There's so much more we didn't cover that's in the book that you're going to enjoy. After you get the book, after you connect with. Dr. Dover on LinkedIn. Check out the Sales Velocity Academy. We've added some new courses just for you. And on that note, this is Victor Antonio with Dr. Dover reminding you that selling ain't hard when you know how. Take care. Big Tin Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. 